So I'm here at Health 2023 in Las Vegas as over 10,000 attendees, 300 and something speakers and 850 something sponsors, all convening at the Las Vegas Convention Center. And this is an ecosystem event for the entire industry, bringing together healthcare innovators and senior executives and decision makers from across the healthcare industry. And these next few days are jam-packed with personalised experiences, helping attendees accelerate business outcomes, stay ahead of emerging trends, connect with the industry, advance their career, or anything in between. And in this episode of Talking Health Tech, I speak to thought leaders and experts about some of the solutions to the biggest problems in healthcare today. Since there's so much great content here at Health, this is part one of two episodes featuring all the conversations that I had at the event. So make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player or over on YouTube so you can catch the next one as soon as it comes out. Right now, here are some of the conversations that I had at Health 2023. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, featuring content and community about technology and healthcare. We acknowledge the traditional owners of lands these conversations were recorded and pay respect to elders past and present. I'm Kate Brown. I lead the Center for Health Innovation for Mercer for the U.S. health business. And I'm from Austin, Texas. Thanks, Kate. I know that you're going to be on a stage today here at Health. Tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about then. Yeah, so I am moderating a panel on artificial intelligence and human resources. And so we've got a really interesting conversation. We've got a VP of Total Rewards, Paul Dubray from Western Governors University. So he's covering like the HR angle. He's a buyer. He's the one in the seat who has to make the decisions about how do you start to evaluate and use AI. Then we've got a company, Cascade Health. Anna Maria Constantine's the founder. She's going to be on stage with us talking about how they're using AI and large language models to basically comb benefits documents to be able to make it into a chat-like experience. So if you have a question about like, I have a baby, what do I need to do from a benefit perspective? You don't have to go trolling through a bunch of websites to find the answer. You can just ask Cascade. Yeah. Uh, and then the last panelist is Brad Younger from 98.6. Uh, they're a SaaS platform, formerly in the care delivery space, virtual care. Um, they spun that off, sold it to Transparent, but they're still operating the software piece. Uh, has AI embedded in it, has for many years. So he's an interesting one because he's a clinician by training. He's a doc. He's their chief medical officer. And he's also going to be talking about sort of what they've learned over the evolution of deploying AI within their their product. Yeah. And it's got a clinical slant to it. So we're coming at it from all different angles. Yeah. It's going to be great. And so you moderating that panel and coming from Mercer, tell us a little bit more about why this discussion is important in what you do. Yeah. Like, why am I on stage moderating amongst these people who actually know what they're talking about? Yeah. Great question. Uh, oh, <laughs> no, it is, it is a legitimate question, especially on the topic of generative AI. Right. Because like it just started. Yeah. So like nobody's actually an expert. So sure. like, I don't know. There are some experts. Well, expert uh, air quotes for those yeah. who are listening. Right. Yeah. No. So I'm definitely a hobbyist. Like the tech came out with the big launch last November of ChatGPT and everybody's talking about it. Um, so I'm playing around with it and trying to learn and educate myself and understand the base technology behind those those models. Um, but my job is really to understand what things are happening in the healthcare ecosystem and in the health and benefits space broadly over the next 
you know, several years and translate that specifically for employer buyers in the U.S. health space. Yes. Um, and so generative AI is going to change everything about the world that we live in and about the business that we run. And so I need to do the work to understand all of that, to then translate it for the employer buyer, the Paul Dubrays of the world who are sitting in an HR position who are like, this all seems really cool. How do I know what to do with it? How do I know what's legitimate and what's yeah. not? Um, that's kind of my role on every topic broadly sort of tagged as innovation within health. Um, but obviously AI is top of mind right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think about that topic and th this discussion and it makes very, it very much makes sense to have this conversation here at a US healthcare conference. I don't think we have the same conversation in Australia or any other healthcare system that doesn't have that, you know, employer payer type relationship going on there. For those really trying to get their head around, even people within the US getting their head around, I was gonna say from outside, but I think a lot of people within the US still need to get their head around it. Like um, the, the real, I, I get that there's a labyrinth of information that needs to be understood and AI can play a role there, but uh, is that the big issue that we're trying to solve here? Or like, because AI often, it, it can often be a hammer that everyone's looking for a nail to hit because they've got this cool technology. Sure. Can we apply it to this? And maybe let's put a chat onto that and maybe that'll help. But like, what do, what do we really need to help in this space? Like, what are the really big problems and can yeah. AI play a role there? Yeah, I thought you were going in a different direction with that question, which is like, what the hell's wrong with the U.S. healthcare system? I have to pull back a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, the the context is that like half of the U.S. population gets access to their health insurance via their employer. Yeah. And so decisions are made for people about their healthcare access by the organizations that they're affiliated with, which is really different from some company or from some other countries, right? Sure. Um, and so... Within that, you've got employers making decisions about their benefit strategy based on what their organization needs to do, you know, from a talent management perspective, from a financial perspective. And those choices that they make at the organization level trickle down to what the employee ultimately gets to access. Yeah. Um, so to your question about, like, how does AI solve for some of the big challenges? I think you're absolutely right. It shouldn't be a hammer for everything that is wrong with health and benefits administration or delivery. Um, but I think it can really help navigation and personalization of benefits. Yes. So people really struggle to like understand what they're supposed to do when they have a life event. You don't really think about benefits outside of maybe your open enrollment window and putting a large language model, a chat-based model sort of embedded where your employees typically find their workflow and allowing that as an entry point into benefits kind of in the nature or the daily rhythm of their work, yeah. I think could actually change the way people do engage with the benefit system on an ongoing basis. So that's like the benefit side of things. That's like, you know, you're sitting at your computer at work and you think about like, oh, I need to find a pediatrician appointment for my kid. Instead of going out to Google or going out to a carrier app or website, if you could do that within sort of your workflow that you're already in from your employer in your Outlook inbox or in your intranet site, whatever it might be, where you could actually complete that transaction and say like, yep, got my pediatrician appointment scheduled, good to go, without like breaking strides, so to speak. That's a really different experience than what we have today. Um, the benefit of that is that you don't have people who are like dropping off to go do other things, right? They're just kind of taking care of what they need to in the flow of the workday. So you probably gain some productivity out of doing that. 
where it gets really cool and really much more interesting and more impactful. Okay, so that's your benefit experience. You were able to like complete the transaction of scheduling the appointment that you need to make. If that then fed into what your doctor is going to see when they're actually seeing you in the visit. So they had the context from the chat that you had with your workforce bot about like, oh, my kid has a potential ear infection. That feeds right into the clinician's experience too. So I don't have to yeah, keep Nate. repeating myself. Yeah. That's amazing, yeah, right? That's like cool. it drives me crazy when you go to the doctor and you're like, I filled out this form online. I'm filling it out again. I have to fill it yeah. out one more time when I'm in the visit room. Like yeah. I feel like that's one potential. Right. Benefit. It's getting it's getting talking. You get that patronizing look of like, oh no, that system doesn't talk to that system. Yeah, so why right. why would you expect that? Right. <laughs> and like you're the idiot for thinking that it should. And yeah. then you're like, well, you just sit van. Yeah, 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 exactly. Follow-up question, what the hell is wrong with the US healthcare system? <laughs> <laughs> Everything I just described. <laughs> so I saw that Mercer had a really good um, presence out on the exhibition booth as well. Handy being next to the stage that you'll be you know. into, which is nice. Um, but the, what, what are some of the, and a lot of good conversations that look like that are happening there, and you've, you've split it out into those two sections too. What are the types of conversations that are happening in the booth? Today? Yeah, so we do have two different spaces. Uh, one is sort of a respite space for the employers who are here because as we talked about in sort of pre for this yep. this conversation, right? Like this is a very overwhelming event and employers are a buyer at this event. And so there are a lot of companies here that are trying to pitch. And sometimes they're trying to pitch things that are really not ready for the employer market. Yeah. Uh, and they really don't understand the complexity and all of the different stakeholders and players that are involved in that transaction. And so that's part of the space is like, here you go, employer, like you can go in here and you don't have to worry about being pitched. Yep. Um, the other space is actually about Mercer being able to interact with vendors in the healthcare ecosystem that do service employers. So we as consultants are trusted advisors for those employer clients of ours. They trust us to understand like who's legitimate and who's not, who's going to make an impact and who's not. And so that vendor space is really the opportunity for the vendors to come pitch us so that we can tell them about how to work with Mercer and how to be a partner to those consultants so that they can get to the employer buyer that they're so desperate to talk to. Yeah, love it. And I guess somewhat of a follow-up from that one, but I guess maybe from your perspective, lastly, at this event, you've mentioned you've been to a few. What are some like uh, some things that you would hope people might take away, alternatively something you might take away from, from the last couple of days at Health 2023? So this is directed at folks who are in the employer seat um, this is a conference that doesn't directly market to employers. And because of that, I think it's intimidating for a lot of folks who are in the HR or benefit space, right? They might choose other events that are more targeted to that demographic. But being here, I think, is a really unique opportunity to see all of the innovation that's happening across the healthcare space that ultimately is going to influence the options that you have as a buyer over the next several years. So if you actually wanna be strategic and really get ahead of what's coming, this is the place to invest your time, not some of the more traditional HR geared conferences. My name's Alex Banco. I'm the Director of Communications for the Center for Innovation, which is the nonprofit home of both the Greenhouse Project and Pioneer Network. 
And very simply, what we do is we work with organizations across the elder care continuum. So nursing homes, assisted living communities, home health, the whole gamut, really trying to change both the physical space, uh, the physical design of elder care environments, and also the culture. So really trying to infuse person-directed, person-centered living cultures into uh, care settings. Most of the time in a care setting, uh, it's very much uh, revolved around the convenience and efficiency of the operator. Mm. We really try to put the people who actually live and work in these communities at the center of decision making. So we have uh, partner organizations all across the United States and, and now in Australia. We can get to that a little bit later, I think. Amazing. Well, that's great to hear. I'm keen to learn about that. And and I would love to learn a bit more about what that might look like because we, we talk about concepts of um, trying to uh, develop ways for people to uh, live longer at home and, and age at home and, and provide more home services and technology plays a role in that. How's this kind of fit into that kind of picture and, and what does that look like potentially? I imagine involves two key stakeholders. There would be the person receiving the, the, the care or being in the home, but also there'd be carers and people you know involved around it as well. Yeah, it's really about changing the overall philosophy of the way we look at caregiving, right? You know, we have a very medicalized uh, view of caregiving here where if you go into a nursing home or you need assisted living services, you're treated as sort of this like, you know, agglomeration of symptoms, right? You know, you've got diabetes, you need help getting dressed in the morning, and uh, sometimes you get forgetful. Uh, and so we tend to treat people as just these symptoms. And we don't really think about, well, what are their goals? What are their hopes? What are their desires? And, you know, when I talk about person-directed living, it's really simple stuff. It's as simple as saying, you know what, let's not wake everybody up at 6 in the morning if they live in a communal care setting or if it's a home uh, care aide coming. Let's not wake people up at 6 in the morning to take their medicine and have breakfast if they're night people. Mm. Uh, let's not cook them food that they don't like that's unfamiliar. Uh, let's not just assume that just because someone needs extra supports and assistance that they're not capable of continuing to do all the things that they used to do. They can continue to volunteer. They can continue to worship where they worship, uh, be part of social networks. Obviously, it may not be as simple as it was in the past, but there's so much that we sort of just assume people can't do in these situations that they really can with the right yeah. services and supports. And, and you, you were, um, tell me a bit more, you say you, you've been up on, a, on one of the stages here, the impact stage at Health, and you're on a, uh, a little panel there. Tell me about the, some of these points that you just mentioned then where it came out in that discussion, right? Yeah, and really the point of the discussion was talking about the need for a real continuum of healthcare services. Yes. Here in the States specifically, there's a lot of competition. People, especially in the elder care space, they tend to view older people as, you know, like a finite pool of potential money-making opportunities, right? You know, the nursing home operators want as many people living in nursing homes as possible. The home health care companies want as many people receiving care at home as possible. And what we're trying to say with our work is that it's not a zero-sum game. There's a full continuum and people need different kinds of services as they age. So if you want to live at home and you live in a place where it's easy to live at home, we want as many people as possible to live at home. Some people though, maybe they live in a six-story walk-up or maybe they live in a rural area and they're very isolated from their networks. Uh, maybe that's not right for them to live in, to live at home where the only people coming to visit are care aides. So our vision is a full continuum where everyone's working together along that continuum trying to follow the people as they age in the right setting because it can change. You know, I think people also tend to see aging as this static thing, you know, like, oh, they can just receive care at home and then they'll be fine. Mm. But 
life changes. You know, maybe your social network in your home area kind of has gone away for whatever reason. You don't have those kind of informal supports and those friend networks. You know, what did we learn during COVID is that isolation is just as damaging, uh, if not more damaging to people as, you know, infections, physical uh, health issues. So we really see it as not just building a full continuum of healthcare services, but really recognizing that it's a full continuum of social supports. Uh, making sure that people receive the care that they want in the setting that they uh, that they want and making sure that care is dignified and mm. not, you know, sitting in a hospital bed for 18 hours a day. And it's an interesting challenge, isn't it, too, because, you know, we, we often think about, you know, when the top broader topic around aged care or, or people, uh, an elderly population typically require more healthcare services. And, and that's why often those conversations come together. And, and if we're looking at this issue around helping people you know, age gracefully at home or receive care at home, it very much gets put in that healthcare bucket. But like you say, there are, you know, there's that bigger picture there around other social issues, which then feed back into this healthcare problem in the first place. But I guess if we're only looking at it through the lens in which it is funded, because that's how things get done, and if the funding systems don't support that bigger issue, then I guess we, we don't really get out of the game. Yeah, you don't get out of it. And you also, you know, you mentioned the healthcare piece. It's so much of a housing piece as well. And mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of great uh, accessible housing for people. Uh, there isn't a lot of affordable housing for people. You know, um, I mentioned on stage that I had just come. I was just in Detroit earlier this week at one of our partner communities where they have built a whole continuum of services in one place. So they have a PACE center, which is basically here in the States, PACE provides uh, healthcare coverage to people who would normally have to go to a nursing home, but it provides those services in the community. So it's basically a federally funded program to get people out of nursing homes, stay in the community as long as possible. So there's a PACE center where it's full healthcare clinic, there's day services, there's activities, there's transportation, there's meals. Um, and then also in that same complex, there's affordable, independent and assisted living. And then there's also greenhouse homes for people who need additional maybe 24-hour care. So that model really excites me. It really excites the people that we work with because it solves all of those other non-healthcare issues, right? Access to food, making sure you're eating three times a day. That's hard to do sometimes if you're getting older and you can't cook for yourself or maybe you're going through dementia and you may not remember to eat all the time. Being able to be transported to your healthcare appointments. Uh, a lot of people don't stay on their healthcare appointments because they don't have transportation. Maybe mm -hmm. they're relying on uh, a son or daughter who's working and can't be around there in the middle of the day to take you to all of your appointments. Uh, it also solves the housing issue. So many people in the United States end up in a nursing home because they can't afford where they're living anymore. And a nursing home is the only place where they can get government funded coverage for those kinds of services. So we find that model very exciting because it solves all those other non-healthcare issues mm. and they have better healthcare outcomes than a nursing home yeah. because people are fed, they have social connections, they have community, they have all the other stuff that goes into well-being that's not just medicine and IVs. Absolutely. And and to, to all those points that you raise, this is um, absolutely not just an issue isolated to the US as well. I imagine it's an issue that you see everywhere around the world, hence the, the mention that you made earlier around Australia as well. Yeah. So we were really excited uh, just, I think, last month at this point. Um, uh, our partners, the ACH group in um, Australia and Adelaide, they opened Healthia, which is the first uh, full adaptation or full, sorry, application of the greenhouse model in uh, outside of the United States uh, and it was first in Australia um, so they built a care center that uh, really has those those greenhouse um, features which if you're not familiar are all private rooms 10 to 12 people in individual homes 
Uh, they all have their own private bedrooms, bathrooms. There's outdoor space that you can access without asking permission. Uh, there is uh, a warm hearth uh, where the fireplace, where people can gather and they can talk and you can have family members come and visit and friends come and visit. There is a residential kitchen in every home where food is cooked fresh. Uh, when I was just in Detroit last week, it was incredible. We, we were taking a tour of the building and it was mealtime and we could smell mac and cheese being made. <laughs> and you could smell all this stuff. And in, in hearing the folks who work in these homes, you know, they say people when people, come, when people come to a greenhouse home, maybe they're not eating very much. Mm. Maybe they're not, they can't even feed themselves or they just don't want to eat because they've been living in a traditional nursing home for so long and the food has been very bad. And you actually see people eat when they weren't eating before. Mm. You see people gaining weight when maybe they had been losing a lot of weight. So that's just another little thing that you don't think about when you think about a care home type setting. But having that food prepared fresh, you know, everyone on the tour was like, hmm, it smells great. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, everyone else. And also the residents participate in the meal planning. They determine what the menus are like. If they want to, they participate in the cooking of the meals because, you know, a lot of people like to cook. I like to cook. Uh, I would love to still have that be part of my life, even if I needed extra services and supports. So the problems are universal, but the solutions are universal as well. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a greenhouse home. It can be, I mean, we like it if it was a greenhouse home because we think that it's a great model. But as I was saying during the presentation earlier, I don't see home health as our competitor. I don't see independent assisted living as our competitor. I see us as all playing a part in this wider continuum of services that we need to really create the healthcare system that we want and deserve. So good. And how do you see the future of this space playing out? You know, we, uh, I think on the panel that was asked around what, what this space looks like in 2050 and you and I will be both of similar age and kind of needing those services coming up to <laughs> close to it too. So how would you like to see it anyway? You know, I would like to see uh, what I described with a full continuum. Like it, it, we have 15,000 nursing homes in the United States. That number's got to go down. We got to have maybe about 9,000 small home style nursing nursing homes. I, I Googled while you're going. We have two and a half thousand, by the yeah. way. In, in <laughs> the, the size is probably quite different. <laughs> but, you know, that is a smaller amount of homes, uh, you know, the quote unquote nursing home level of care. But have those wraparound services be part of it. Have those social connections be part of it. Really have a full continuum so I can decide for myself what I want, not what we have here in the United States currently, and I suspect in Australia and many other places around the world, where you just get jammed into you know, whatever the big monolithic payment model is. You know, Like I said, so many people here are in nursing homes when they don't have to be, because that's the only way they can get that kind of care funded. PACE and other programs are great, and they try to say, wait a minute, what we're spending on to, to keep this person in a nursing home, they're miserable, the care is generally worse, the outcomes are generally worse, let's shift that to the home, let's shift that to the community, let's shift that to affordable assisted living. Um, it's great, and I think that's where we really need to be working. That's what I want the system to be. I don't want to live in a technically compliant, really nice nursing home when I'm older. And so much of the reform effort in this country, and I expect also in Australia, is about how can we regulate what already exists better? And I would like to issue a call to everyone listening and watching that, you know, that's not good enough. I don't want to regulate a setting that I don't want to live in, even if it's well regulated. I want us to build a new continuum of care that really treats people like humans and really gets people, you know, acknowledges that aging is another phase of life and you can still have goals, dreams, you can still learn new things, you can still participate. Uh, that's not what we have today, but I hope that's what we have when I get older. My name is Holly Miller and I am the president of Colette Health, which was formerly MedSitter. 
and we are a um, virtual care observation company. Excellent. Virtual care observation company. Tell me a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, so we have a turnkey solution that combines hardware, software, and then clinical observers to really focus on virtual care, patient safety, patient outcomes for high acuity, high risk patients in the hospital setting. So if, if you will think about it, there's a camera that is in the rooms of these high acuity patients and our technology is incorporating algorithms to monitor their effectiveness and safety to prevent falls, prevent adverse events. Um, and doing so reduces the burden on the staff. So um, historically it was one-on-one -on -one observers sitting with these high acuity patients. And so with our technology, we have the ability to have one observer monitor up to 10 patients at one time. Obviously some good efficiencies there in terms of being able to do more with less and I imagine in the current climate where healthcare workforce shortages and burnout are an issue globally, that's probably where you're uh, addressing a key issue? Yeah, so we're deep rooted and we started in 2017 with our technology to prevent falls. That was the hot topic in 2017, 2018, is how do we eliminate falls in the hospital or reduce falls in the hospital? Mm. And as the climate and healthcare market has changed, we've evolved with our customers. Now, if I go in and talk to one of our clients or partners, the number one they say is, if you can't help me with staff retention and staff burnout, I don't have time to talk to you. Mm. And so, you know, our customers came to us and said, we feel like we can utilize this top technology to make our staff more effective and efficient while it's continuing to improve patient safety and patient outcomes. And so if you think about the climate of, of healthcare in terms of staff, you know, I think it's expected by 2017, there are over 610,000 nurses that are gonna leave the industry altogether from retirement, it's been fueled by burnout. And at the same time, we've got an aging population. We've got the boomers sitting in. Uh, with COVID, people delayed care. They're coming into the healthcare system four times sicker than before. And so there's a gap, and how do we bridge that gap? And we are proving out, and we feel strongly that our technology and our solution helps bridge the gap. Hmm. How have you found, say, the, the adoption or acceptance of so any kind of technology that if you led with the front line of, well, you used to do a one-to-one, -one, now you do a one-to-ten, mm -hmm. your mind immediately thinks to, are you just splitting out the quality of the care and dividing it by 10? Um, you'd want to deliver the same, if not better levels of care for those patients if you're going to be doing it at that level. Have you found the, the actual adoption of that and acceptance through, through um, the hospital settings and, and even the clinicians too? Yeah, we have actually. And, and what we found is that if we can have one observer watching up to 10 patients, those nine other people that were going to be deployed to those patients can go do other things at the bedside and be more effective. Right. Um, the other thing is that because we do have AI models built within our technology, machine learning incorporated in that, we can be more predictive and effective with our monitoring. Um, most of our patients have seen about a 33% decrease in falls when utilizing mm. our system. Um, but more importantly, with the staff reduction, a lot of our hospitals are utilizing us for pilots and team nursing and virtual nursing. We've got one that's in an IRB study right now, and all of the data points that they're capturing are on staff satisfaction, right? So by doing the pilot, they're checking, did my staff get to take a break today? Did they get mm. to leave on time? Did they get to spend time doing proper documentation? Did they get to you know, provide effective bedside care? And those are the KPIs they're looking at right now, is how do we retain our staff? How do we improve their job satisfaction and make them more efficient with the incorporation of technology? That's an interesting point too, because you know there's, there's two elements there and potentially there's more. One is that immediate kind of real time, you need the insights or, or even predictive before they, they occur. 
but then also retrospectively to then determine, you know, how, how did we go? How can we do better next time? So you've got both the forward and, 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 and rear view, I imagine. That's right, that 100%. You know, the other thing that's important to note is while we do have a lot of these nurses leaving the industry altogether for retirement or burnout, that the concept of team nursing and virtual nursing might be able to retain them a little bit longer, right? So if you have a nurse just tired of walking the floor, could mm-hmm. she go and sit behind an observer station and mentor and precept new young nurses or new novice nurses on the floor? Because again, we've got persistent two-way audio and video. So if you've got uh, a more novice nurse in the room, a tenured nurse is sitting there at all times to say, hey, did you check their SATs? Did you check this? Have you, you know, they might be dehydrated. It's, it's providing them on the spot, real-time mentoring. Yeah. It sounds like then it's a little bit more than just putting a video camera and at, at 10 patients and then watching them on a screen. That's you mentioned right. there's, there's AI algorithms. So, so talk me through some of the other technologies. I mean, just like remote patient monitoring elements, looking at vitals and things. Yeah, so within, within our observer stations was where we first started incorporating AI. And so if you think about the concept, if you've got one observer sitting behind a screen monitoring 10 patients, there's a lot, and especially if you're using our observers and you want to make sure those observers are effective, because it's not one-to-one, it's one-to-ten, mm-hmm. is we've built out biometric skill in and it will scan the observer's face, right? So we can see, if I have to see all of these patients, am I watching them or am I looking down at my phone? Mm-hmm. If so, it'll get an alert for me to look at them. So it's, it's also saying, am I scanning all the patients enough? So if I've missed this one patient, then it'll say, look at me, and I'll have to look at that patient. So there's things that we're doing from an AI model to incorporate and in, in machine learning to make sure that the observers are actively observing. But then the other things that we're working on right now would be like body posturing and building out AI algorithms to understand body posturing. Because if two things will happen, one, we can predict, is this person um, at a higher risk for fall because of their body posture in the bed, yeah. leaning to the side? The other thing that will help us predict is wake sleep cycles to say, okay, if a patient is asleep, we may be able to observe additional patients, right? Or if you've got one observer and all 10 patients are doing jumping jacks, maybe you offload some of those with sleep patients so they have a more balanced approach. I imagine surely that's going to assist with issues around alarm fatigue as well, where just because they're, you don't need a ding every seven seconds to let you know that they're still there if because uh, we, we get a little bit numb to all that, right? You 100% do. And so that's um, alarms avoided is one of the metrics that we report on yeah. for our patients or for our customers. And then also, you know, falls prevented. And yeah. as a company, we had a goal early on. Our founder um, at the beginning of the year said, let's do a goal of 50,000 falls avoided this year. So we're like, gosh, that's, that's pretty steep, but I think we can do it. And we actually surpassed 50,000 falls avoided last month. So we're on track to avoid over 100,000 falls this year. And when you put it in human perspective, you know, that's one more parent, sister, brother that avoided a fall. And it's personal for for most of us that are at Colette because we're very mission driven. And so, you know, it's it's a big impact that we're having on on the healthcare community. Amazing. Lastly, thinking about the future then, um, you know, everyone's future-facing here at Health and um, you, you've, you've got lots of meetings and, and working the floor. What, what's exciting you about the future of, of this particular space that you're in? There's so much we can do, right? Yeah. And I've, as the last few months, I've been talking to our customers and everybody's talking about virtual nursing and virtual care, but every single person that you talk to is going to have a different idea of what that means to their organization. Sure. So what's exciting to me is to see all of the other partners in healthcare technology to see how they're addressing this. Do we have opportunities to come together and better support the healthcare industry? Yeah. Um, you know, what role is AI going to play in all of this, right? There's a lot of buzz around AI right now, and 
Um, how will we adopt it to ensure that clinicians are more effective and efficient and, and give them tools to help on the administrative roles of the job? Uh, this is Chakri Toledi, I'm the founder and CEO of CareAI. Excellent. Tell me a little bit more about uh, CareAI. So we started the business in 2019 uh, with the intent of uh, bringing ambient intelligence into healthcare. Uh, you know, when AI was kind of in the early days in healthcare, yeah. uh, in the last you know one year it has changed dramatically. But you know, when we started in 2019. Uh, you know, in, like I said, the intent was to bring uh, ambient monitoring to monitor clinical and operational workflows and give that real-time visibility to the care teams uh, to truly uh, optimize care, right? Uh, and deliver, you know, uh, care, uh, you know, at a higher quality, right? Yes. And so you mentioned focusing on the care teams a little bit more there too, because sometimes when I think about ambient technology, my mind immediately goes to you know, servicing perhaps for a, a patient, you know, uh, monitoring what might be happening in their heart, like care at home and stuff like this. But you're talking about working for the, the, the clinicians, is that right? Yeah, uh, very good question. Like, you know, it's mostly in the, like in the hospitals and nursing mm. homes, you know, in, in the four walls of the, um, you know, uh, inpatient setting, right? In, yes. in acute care or post-acute, like uh, assisted living and skilled nursing facilities, right? That's where we are focused on. Like you said, when we talk about ambient technology, you know, if you want to draw parallels, like uh, look at a Tesla car, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. A self-driving car, right? Um, or the new Amazon Go store, where you can walk in and, you know, pick anything and yeah. it automatically, you know, knows what you've got in your bag and, mm. you know, you get billed automatically, right? So the ability to use technologies like that to uh, help the bedside care team uh, is what we do, right? Yeah. To truly build out a smart hospital. Just like your smart uh, home, you know, you have a ring doorbell or a Nest thermostat, all these different uh, IoT devices yes. that give you information, uh, you know, in real time, right? Yeah. So you can take actions against it. So similarly, when you uh, truly enable a smart patient room, you'll be able to monitor operational and clinical workflows in real time. It's funny, the term smart hospital, it's one that anyone could technically dub on a, on a hospital, you know, like tell me a little bit more about, you, you touched on some of those points around some of the technology that might be used, like IoT, but what do you think is the, like, the caliber of a hospital actually call it a smart hospital? Because I've heard the term being used quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know I'm working on a, a framework or a model, right? Mm. Um, similar to very much like a, a self-driving car, right? If you look at a different stage of autonomy, uh, for autonomous driving vehicles, yeah. there's zero through five, right? Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, imagine the same concept in hospitals. That's what Care AI specializes in, is to build that different levels of smart hospital, right? Yes. Imagine you're zero through five, you know, six different stages of what a smart hospital can be, right from the entrance all the way to the bedside. Mm -hmm. You know, today, any car that's manufactured in the US post 2000 needs to have a backup camera. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you might have, you know, uh, some point solutions that might be deployed in your, you know, in your care environment, but truly to evolve it into a smart care space, uh, it involves a lot more intelligence. Yes. Right. Uh, so as you develop those, uh, you know, endpoints into an integrated platform, you'll be able to do a lot more. Mm. Right. Rather than disparate 
point solutions. Yes. I think uh, as you start to evolve and build a cohesive platform right from the entrance to the bedside, that's when you'll truly have a smart hospital or a smart SNF, uh, you know, or a smart assisted living facility mm. uh, that can be transformative for the care teams. You mentioned the need for a platform and, and the ability to pull these different technologies together. With Care AI, are you focusing majority of your time on software development? Is it you know building hardware and that's then finding the software partners to work with? Are you all vertically integrated? What's, what's that stack yeah. look like? Just like an you know Apple device, yeah. right? Uh, we do have hardware and we have the software that powers the hardware. Yeah. Now, we do partner with companies like NVIDIA and Google, right? Uh, both on the hardware side and on the software side uh, to truly uh, build an integrated solution, right? Now, uh, can you, know, you deploy on any hardware? Technically, yes, we can deploy on any hardware. But what happens when you have a purpose-built solution mm. uh, from a hardware stack perspective? We get a lot more control and a uh, lot more intelligence, right? And uh, fundamentally the ability to scale you know uh, in a in a very cost effective way yes and you know if you want to deploy in 10 20 30000 rooms you need to be able to understand how can you deploy at that scale in a very cost effective way without creating any barriers for scale yes. like you know your network infrastructure a lot of those things you have to take it into consideration. How do you power the device? Can you run it on PoE? How much power is required? Are you running AI algorithms on the edge? Mm. You know, there's so many other things that you need to take it into consideration to deploy at scale, and especially in healthcare, you need reliability. When you say, we're talking about deploying at scale, that's an interesting point. Are there examples of, of Care AI being used like, out in the wild now? And, and at what scale are we talking Are you talking about building with scale in mind in the future? Or is there like big level deployments that you can talk about? Uh, we are doing big level deployments. We have clients who have 30, 40,000 rooms. <laughs> and at the same time, we have uh, clients who have 50 rooms. Mm. It could be a rural sniff in, you know, uh, a remote you know town um, that wants to deploy the solution so you should be able to address that like you know if you have a, a 20,000 square foot home you can put nest devices in every room mm. or if you have a one-bedroom apartment you'll be able to afford a nest so that's the same principle to be able to deploy a technology is yes. what we've uh, you know kind of embarked on yes. right uh, to bring that level of scale and to, to be clear, in terms of the problem that we're really kind of honing in on here is that with, I imagine, a growing need and pressure on the healthcare system and a healthcare workforce that's under pressure in order to deliver that, technology's got to play a role in that. And I imagine to deliver some of those efficiencies at scale, these levels of ambient tech and automation and AI and things are going to be critical in the future. Absolutely. I think you nailed it, right? Uh, especially, it's a global, uh, you know, pandemic right now is the staffing shortage, right? right? How do you really address, you know, the nursing shortage that we're facing across mm. the globe, right? The ability to bring in technologies like this to help the bedside team, it could be, uh, you know, workflows like virtual nursing. All your admissions, all your discharges, all your rounding tasks can be centralized mm. and be done virtually. And in certain use cases, you might have human in the loop and some work workflows you can have you know, human without in the loop also yeah. be enabled using AI, right? That's the power that, you know, uh, in a true, uh, you know, AI enabled, you know, platform can, you know, deliver for healthcare. Mm. And 
thinking on this analogy as well around driverless cars, like self-driving cars. I don't see too many self-driving cars out there at the moment. So, and I, and I know healthcare, uh, at least in Australia, right, and it's the same globally, is that we're a little bit slower to adopt some technologies in healthcare compared to other industries. So, you know, if, if you're developing solutions with that kind of vision in mind, do we need to wait for, you know, the, the um, fully automatic cars to come out first and do that first? And then we're going to see some of this stuff in healthcare. Are you, are you still going to be around when this thing actually... <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can achieve it much faster. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a, a different example, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, how did you get to Vegas today or yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, I'm an affluent. I mean, it was a very long flight from Sydney. Exactly, right? <laughs> so, you know, 70 to 80% of that flight was done, you know, Autonomous, yes, right by algorithms, and you know most of the airplanes that mm. you know we you know we fly today, yeah. majority of the flying is done by the machine, mm. right? Mm. If you want to draw parallels in you know airline industry, yeah. right? Um, imagine like especially in the U.S., right? Um, if an airline would you know crash this week, nobody would flinch. Mm. Next week, everybody might say, "Oh wow, okay." The following week, the following week, every week, people will get scared. Yes. That's what happens in healthcare in the hospitals today. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's the number of people who die every week in avoidable mistakes that happen in hospitals, yeah. right? So bringing automation technology like other industries like airline, which are proven, uh, you know, uh, can really, really help the industry. You know, yeah. one, you know, deliver more, uh, you know, uh, better care, right, in a much more efficient way, yeah. right? So technologies exist in other industries that have been used for a long time. Mm. You know, like a coffee cup has more, you know, AI monitoring in it. You know, if you look at the production, uh, you know, uh, production mm. line, uh, you actually have a camera monitoring it and saying, oh, this cup, you know, doesn't look, you know, it's dented and yeah. it pushes to the side, right? Uh, technologies like computer vision, all uh, you know, uh, ambient technology already exists, right? If you look at large language models, like you know, uh, all the you know, uh, you know, audio-based algorithms, you know, like Alexa's and yeah. you know, uh, okay, Google and Siri and all these uh, things that we tend to use in a day-to-day basis that ambiently you interact with mm. uh, exist. Yes. And that's what we're trying to do in a smart hospital is to make the technology invisible. Mm. That's the core focus for Care AI, is to see how can we make technology invisible to the care team in the room. Yes. I imagine a big part of getting that adoption and, and involvement is going to be building that trust with those care teams and those facilities to be able to, you know, we're dealing in an in a, uh, industry that's, uh, sure, it's one thing to have, you know, coffee cups go through a, a, a factory model, but, you know, when... We always talk about it in healthcare, we, we take things much more um, carefully and slowly because we're dealing with people's lives. Absolutely, couldn't take anymore. Yeah. Obviously, it, it you know, it's life and death, yeah. right? Like uh, the the systems need to be designed for that, mm. and that's why you have to pick workflows. Mm. Where in today you might feel comfortable with human in the loop for some time, and then slowly as the technology evolves and the AI becomes smarter and smarter, then you will pick and choose workflows where you will have human without in, 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 without the loop, right? Uh, not in the loop. It's progressive. So that's where I think it'll evolve to, but you know, you might start with human in the loop, Yes. and once the technology proves itself, you will get to a mode where you know, you know, human not in the loop will be the future. Sounds sensible. Hey, lastly, you know, we're at Health, there's a lot of people here, and uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to get the rounds. What are you hoping to get out of, uh, out of the event? 
Uh, uh, we launched KAI in 2019 at a health event. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here we are in 2023. Uh, health has grown. I think, uh, you know, it's uh, exciting to see the innovation that's happening. And it's always great to come and see, learn, and meet uh, people who are trying to innovate. And also catch up with clients and uh, learn. Uh, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be a, uh, you know, a good experience. So I'm Ron Dixon. I'm a physician and I'm the CEO of CareHive Health. Excellent. Thanks, Ron. And tell us a bit more about CareHive Health, what that is. So CareHive comes from my experience. I'm a physician who worked at Mass General for years. And there was this big discrepancy in some of the places that I was working. So I did some ICU work as a resident or I'd walk into the ICU and the nurses would have basically in rank order the patients I needed to see from one to 10. And when I'd go into the rooms, there was lots of documentation prepared for me. So I didn't necessarily have to write detailed documentation, just had to make decisions and move on to the next patient. Mm -hmm. And then contrast that to, I'd then go to my clinic and there'd be no rhyme or reason as to who I was seeing. Mm -hmm. For example, I'd have a sore throat followed by a pink eye, followed by a heart failure exacerbation. And I'd have the same amount of time to see all those people. So that didn't make a lot of sense. So it made me start to think about what if you thought about triage and who you're gonna see in an outpatient clinic a little differently. And, and what if you're able to take what was in those nurses' heads when they were making decisions about who to see and put that into a computer, right? And then you'd be able to A, start to predict on an outpatient basis about who needs to be seen and then B, you could innovate around the modality that you would see those patients. So instead of seeing everybody in person, you might see some people on video. Mm. You might not actually see some people at all. You just send them a series of questions and have them follow up. And uh, with CareHive, where that becomes really important is thinking about how you manage chronic disease. So thinking about diabetes or hypertension or compression or heart failure, a lot of these established patients can be managed at the very asynchronous fashion where you're asking questions and getting information. And then you could use analytics on that information to think about what the next best step was, right? Yeah, interesting. And so that I think about from my own experience in the outpatient space, in Australia at least, the, the art of booking in patients in for appointments it's, it's the dark arts of scheduling that happens yeah. at the front desk and the yeah. practice managers, and it depends on, you know, a few different criteria. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's really it, it, taking a different approach to that. Um, it seems like a somewhat disruptive approach. How have you found that it's accepted in, in these clinics oh. to be able to do that kind of thing? So when we started the work, the, like, like everything, the lion's share was convincing people yeah. that A, it's safe, and that B, it doesn't interfere with the relationship that you're gonna have with the patient, because a lot of people felt like, well, if you move a visit out of the office and now I have to do it, they're, they're doing it basically on a computer, I'm not seeing them, and um, I'm not building that relationship. Um, and then there was also some concern about inserting a navigator, because I think that was also a big part of the strategy, is we inserted people to support the patients who are using the software called navigators. Um, and those navigators ended up kind of being like air, tra air traffic control for those patients. And there were concerned that if we use navigators, that would also disrupt the relationship that the doctor would have because there's yeah. like now an in-between. Neither of those were founded. So we actually did studies to look at um, 
the time savings that were occurring when you use asynchronous interactions with patients with chronic disease, and we found it took around one-fifth the time. But we also looked at patient satisfaction, which was off the chart. So once patients did it, they wanted to, they wanted to do it again. And then the campaign to get the most difficult adopters, I would say it's always the doctors, right? Doctors don't necessarily want to do something new, generally because you're always asking something of us, which yeah. we're already asked enough things, so we can't add tasks to the doctor's list. So this methodology allowed you to subtract something, right? So you use the navigator. The doctor didn't necessarily have to see the patient, but he or she had to make the decision on the patient's blood pressure medications or yeah. the patient's antidepressant medications. And this process enabled that decision to be made a lot faster and a very convenient way for the patient. And so CareHive is both then a software platform and coupled with this, uh, what was well, the, the, the term for the for the uh, the person involved as well from your side? The navigator, yeah. So, so I can so, put CareHive yeah. together, which again, the genesis is from the work that uh, I did at Mass General, but mm. CareHive now, because data and analytics have progressed so much in the past 15 years, so the original concept was developed around 2007. Yeah. Uh, fast forward to 2024, 2023, and now you have this tremendous capacity in, uh, in computing and machine learning and amalgamating different sources of data uh, that, that you just couldn't do back in the client server days. So what CareHive does is think of that nurse brain that I talked about. Yeah. Now you take an analytics approach to large population data, say from a health plan, and you, you know you're focused on chronic disease because that's where a lot of the cost for a health plan comes. So we will look at the health plan data and say, this is where your areas of concern are. Um, and then the health plan says, well, we have a business case where we think that we are spending a lot of money on let's say, uh, laboratory tests and referrals for members on our network. And we know that there's a huge variation in the costs based on where you do these in the network, and we'd like to navigate patients to more financially beneficial uh, areas to get these services done, at the same time maintaining the quality of care and perhaps providing actually a better patient experience through guidance and navigation. So we take that data and we say, all right, this is where we'll target, and then we take the software platform and we do asynchronous outreach to those patients who have been identified. And that's supported by in-person navigation. And then we navigate them into the area that the business case is made for. So for in this case, yeah. it's referral. So how are we gonna get you to a less costly, probably less costly for you, less costly for the plan, while creating a better experience of that referral process so that your basically hand is held and you don't have any drop-offs. That's a really interesting approach, and I like that, that involvement with the different stakeholders to ensure that that funding piece is covered. I know you were up on a stage yesterday in a panel, I believe, here at Health. Tell me a bit more about what was covered in that session. We were specifically talking about some of the difficulties when you are implementing with some of these massive systems, yeah. like health plans, pay providers, so people that have both a, a provider network and a plan, and large health systems. And coming from a large health system, it was a very interesting experience being on stage with someone who was actually still there at a large health system. Um, somebody who's working in infrastructure and then myself kind of more in an entrepreneurial startup who is now dealing with that 
mm. massive um, ecosystem. What we, you know, what I've learned, um, you know, there are many things I learned, but the biggest thing is that these large systems, they have their own organ system, so to speak. So just like, you know, we have the brain, the heart, yeah. liver, kidneys, pancreas, they have marketing, finance, yeah. clinical operations, and they might not talk to each other. And there's likely some, there's always internal dynamics and politics that are at play. Sure. So when you're gonna be working with these systems, you as an entrepreneur, you have no choice but to have, you know, your marketing people mix with their marketing, your finance mix with their finance, your IT mix with their IT, your clinical ops mix with their clinical And what that leads to is, you know, you discover that, well, maybe their, their IT hasn't talked to their um, compliance people yet. And yeah. we actually need to enable that conversation because that prevents us from moving forward. So yeah. there are all of these internal dynamics that you have to massage as an entrepreneur. I think the second piece that um, is extremely prevalent, you speak to any entrepreneur about working with these large systems, is the pace. You have to be ready to wait because there's so many different projects in place. There's so many different departments, as I've said, that they, um, they don't feel the urgency that we do. No, yeah, and it'd be, that'd be a really interesting conversation, particularly coming from someone like yourself that's got that experience um, in those different roles and seeing it now from, from the other side. Uh, that's and such an important part to the, the whole picture, particularly in, a, in, an, in an area such so complex as that, that American system as well. Yeah. Lastly, Ron, think about the future then. Everyone here at Health talking about what the future of healthcare is and what we can look forward to. From your perspective, what are you most excited about? So it hasn't changed. I mean, the nice thing that the pandemic did was kind of thrust the idea of alternative methods of delivering service yep. and care to people. But at the base of what we do, it's about access, right? It's about outcomes and patient experience. And I always like to think of that, that's all wrapped in a bubble of trusting relationships. What I see for the future is uh, there's a lot of conversation about equity and a lot of conversation about you know, the next phase of digital health and adoption. Uh, but I don't see much changing unless we, we really focus on how we build ecosystems that encourage the development of trusting relationships that are enabled by technology. Um, and I think that's really what we're trying to do at, at CareHive is, you know, we're, I believe that health is enabled by trusting relationships. And technology and data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence can really bring efficiencies, especially on the delivery side. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, for complex, um, rare diseases only. We're talking about simple things like, how do you make the doctors off the schedule better? How do you make the doctors just um, uh, charting easier? Um, how do you make the medical, medical assistance uh, interview of the patients much more efficient? So mm. those types of process improvements can be really benefited from some of the technology. But at the end of the day, it's still about people and trusting relationships. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Health Tech. Make sure you like and subscribe and share this episode with someone who might find it valuable. 
For more information and resources about healthcare innovation, visit TalkingHealthTech.com.